This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 27th of August 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello, I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up, the historian, screenwriter and broadcaster Alex von Tonzelman will be here to flick through the day's papers. Also ahead on today's programme, Monocle's editor-in-chief Andrew Tuck joins us with his weekend column. He's concerned with law and order and bull's penises. And then Andrew Muller will take a look at the week's weirder stories. We learned that forecasting the weather in Hungary is not for the faint of heart, thin of skin, weak of knee or saggy of spine. Gosh, it's almost like you know me, Andrew. That's all ahead on Monocle on Saturday with me, Georgina Godwin. But first, here are the day's headlines. Yesterday, the US Justice Department released a heavily redacted affidavit that underpinned the FBI's extraordinary search of former President Donald Trump's Florida residence, in which agents seized 11 sets of classified records, including some labelled top secret, as documents that could gravely threaten national security if exposed. An airstrike on a children's play area killed at least seven people in the capital of Ethiopia's northern Tigray region on Friday, medical officials there said. The first such attack after a four-month-old ceasefire collapsed this week. The officials said three children were among the dead, but a federal government spokesman denied any civilian casualties. Ukraine's president said the situation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant remains very risky after two of its six reactors were reconnected to the grid following shelling that caused Europe's largest nuclear power plant to be disconnected for the first time in history. And French President Emmanuel Macron responded to Liz Truss's remark that the jury is out on whether Macron is friend or foe. He said the United Kingdom is a friendly nation, regardless of its leaders, sometimes in spite of its leaders. Liz Truss, currently engaged in Britain's leadership race, is also the country's foreign secretary and top diplomat. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Right, well, I am delighted to say that the historian, screenwriter and broadcaster Alex von Tunzelman is with me. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Georgina. Uh, now, you're all of these things, a historian, a screenwriter and a broadcaster, but you're also engaged in, what shall I say, retail. Well, you know, we all have portfolio careers these days, <laughs> Georgina. Yes, yes, I am. Well, I mean, I've been lucky enough recently to start up a small company with three very dear friends, Faisal Khan, Nazreen Malik and Alexandra Pringle. All of us sort of writers, publishers, editors, so on. Um, but we have a great love for um, travel, for adventure. And we've set up this company called Silk Road Slippers that sort of... So, we're doing both a book club to sort of explore ideas from that part of the world and also sort of showcasing and selling some wonderful handicrafts from that region. So we've been pretty devastated this week to hear about the floods in Pakistan, which, of course, are affecting lots of the artisans that we work with. Mm, and I believe, in fact, everything you're selling this week, you're giving a portion of those profits to flood relief. Absolutely. We're giving 20% of the profits to the ED Foundation, which is a really wonderful Pakistani social welfare organisation that is non, you know, kind of very interdenominational, um, very, very positive organisation or just encouraging people by all means if you don't want to buy our uh, our stuff then just donate directly that would also be completely wonderful. 
wonderful. And if you do want to buy your stuff, as in fact I have just done, <laughs> uh, how do you do it? Um, at the moment, we are just going on Instagram at Silk Road Slippers. Uh, so there will soon be a website, there will soon be all of this, and we're very, very much hoping to get that up and running to um, to help these communities in places like Sawat, which, of course, you know, has the most fabulous textiles and, you know, incredible skill of artisans. And, you know, we're very, very keen to get that up and running to try and help people recover from this completely awful disaster. Well, let's have a look at that disaster in more detail. Now, this is um, this is from Dawn. That's an, a Pakistani uh, media outlet. Yes, yes. It's a newspaper there, a very kind of venerable English language newspaper. And so, I mean, I was just reading the editorial this morning there and... You know, really what they do in this editorial is identify just the wider implications of this, because, of course, you can see the awful pictures of the floods now. And of course, you'll realise, you know, yes, that creates terrible problems for millions of people right now. But also the knock on issues that this is, of course, a huge problem for food, for agriculture. That's going to be a problem going forward, a huge problem for industry, for textiles and so on, you know, which very much are coming from that region. Um, So really, this isn't just, you know, when these sort of awful climate events happen, it's not just... The event itself, it's the knock-on, which actually can really last for years afterwards. So, you know, I think they're going to need a lot of support in that part of the world. Absolutely. And as you say, you're, you're doing as much as you can. Will it have a knock-on effect beyond its borders? I mean, it will because, you know, of course, uh, the whole region is affected to some extent. Um, but also that, you know, if if you do get terrible poverty in one country, of course, that can cause problems in neighbouring countries as well. There can be, you know, huge spread of difficulties there. And I think particularly with, you know, the Indus, the huge rivers that flow down through Pakistan, um, those actually kind of rise in Tibet and then go through uh, the disputed region of Kashmir. So there's great worries in the future about water security with that, you know, depending on India and Pakistan's relations, that's a very precarious situation for water security um, in the future as well, which of course can affect droughts and floods. So I think there are deep concerns really about the whole region and, and relations there. And, and you know, this this is sort of this climate change aspect is just adding even more fuel really to that fire. Mm. I mean, is this quite a common thing? Does that area flood anyway? I mean, there are certainly there were terrible floods in 2010 that were extremely bad. But actually, people are saying these are probably the worst now in living memory. Um, and you know, I we, we keep hearing this um, in Europe all summer. We've been hearing about the most extreme temperatures, and now these are the worst floods. So you know, globally, I really feel that we're now looking at a situation where it's there really must be action soon. You know, mm-hmm. some concerted international action on this because, you know, this is, you know, there are something like 30 million people affected. I mean, it's absolutely enormous. How do you begin to approach this problem? Yeah. Of course, Pakistan has its political problems too. Imran Khan, uh, who, of course, was, was the PM, uh, is now up on terrorism charges. And uh, th- that's, a, yeah. a, 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 I mean, a, a, a big deal in Pakistan. And law and order is also what concerns Andrew Tuck this week. Let's have a listen to his column. A friend robbed. We've known each other for years, but because his hometown is on the other side of the planet in Sydney, we don't spend enough time together. This summer, however, he's based himself in Palma de Mallorca, where I also camp out. So our paths have not just crossed, but nicely interwoven again. Last weekend, en route to see his mum in Scotland, he stayed at our house in London. And on Saturday, he nipped out to get provisions for lunch. And just as he returned, at the very point of entering our calm muse, a guy on a bike came from behind and snatched his phone, which unfortunately had his credit cards 
and his Australian driving licence tucked into the case. Back in the house as his shock abated, we tracked his iPhone using the Find My app and watched as it crossed over Waterloo Bridge and headed south, off to a new life in Elephant and Castle. Should we follow? Potentially getting stabbed didn't seem like much fun. Another annoying crime, insignificant in a city where muggings like this are commonplace. He reported the theft to the police. Well, he filled in an online form. In the hours that followed, as cards were cancelled and new phones secured, we all tortured ourselves. I should have warned him about looking at his phone in the street. He should never have had his driving licence with his phone. We should have all gone to the deli together. Just the usual, the victim blaming themselves, not the perpetrator. I have felt bad about the incident all week. My neighbourhood looks so seductively nice, no wonder someone from Sydney got taken in. But then you read about a girl, aged nine, shot in Liverpool. A woman battered in the street for her watch and no police able to attend. And you think, wow, how lucky we were. I keep seeing ads that promise me that, yes, the product that I am looking at is definitely going to be way more expensive than its modest looks would make one expect. There's the tableware brand that asks, it looks great, but why is it so expensive? A trouser company that promises you'll pay way more than you had hoped, and a dog food brand that insists it isn't cheap. And why? Well, because we believe pets deserve the same luxury as we do. Okay, firstly, as a dog owner, let me explain that while I would do just about anything for her, sadly, she has no concept of luxury. The finest venison or a gift from a friend of what I believe to be a giant dried bull's penis should rather have a chew on the latter. Well, she may have a point. Souffle chicken or a couple of pig's ears still with the fur on? I think you know the answer. And I don't even eat meat. But why this spate of expensive is better ads? We live in a moment of strange cross currents that are pulling us in different directions. The cost of living crisis makes, well, some people uncomfortable about splashing the cash. But we also know that buying cheap is often the same as insisting a child in Asia stitches your knickers. So, spat out of this tidal mess, emerge brands that realise forcing people to pay over the odds actually makes them feel better, makes them feel confident that they have done well by the world and the dainty of finger. I get it. But I promise you, on the dog front, desiccated bull's bits are what most dogs go to bed dreaming of. So don't fall for that one. If you're a judge for the day, do you think you'd be the community service sort of punisher or the straight-to-jail variety? I'd like to think I was the former, but after last weekend, I worry I may be the latter. Although, a slight pause here. If you go onto the website for the Old Bailey the highest court in England, you can type in the name of any street in central London and it will tell you about trials connected to crimes that occurred there. There are lots across the ages that involve my road. In 1827, for example, there was a burglary in a neighbouring mews, but it went wrong, and one of the three robbers, John Cranley, was apprehended just where you enter my road, 
perhaps the exact spot where my house guest was robbed last Saturday. At the subsequent trial, Cranley, the record state, was recommended to mercy by the prosecutor who had employed him seven years and believed him to be the support of an aged mother. But the judge determined that his time was up and, aged 23, he was sentenced to death. And all for nabbing a ring and some coins. It seemed harsh. Fair enough for an iPhone, but a silly ring? Andrew, thank you very much indeed. This is Monocle on Saturday, and still with me in the studio is Alex von Tonselman, who, amongst her uh, huge array of talents, <laughs> is an historian. Uh, and, of course, uh, the history of Algeria is somewhere that uh, is really the focus is on at the moment, and that's because of uh, Emmanuel Macron. Yes, he um, has been on his visit to Algeria, um, which has come a year after he made a rather inadvised remark um, saying that Algeria hadn't really been a country or a nation before France colonised it or took it over or whatever. And, um, and this caused incredible disquiet in Algeria. You know, ambassadors were withdrawn, French planes couldn't fly over Algerian airspace. I mean, really quite a serious spat. Uh, so now he's going out and he's proposing a joint committee of Algerian and French historians to, you know, go into the archives and really look at that colonial history. And a lot of those archives have been closed. So this is this is quite serious progress. This is obviously, you know, a very, very different line. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and do you think that it will come to anything? Well, I hope so. I mean, I think there's been a particularly fraught kind of relationship between France and Algeria in this respect. In that I, you do still find when you talk to a lot of, you know, even sort of quite sophisticated French historians and people that there's this, still this line about, you know, it wasn't a colony, it was part of metropolitan France. It's a different situation from the colonial relationship. But on the other hand, lots of Algerians clearly felt quite differently from that. Um, and, you know, I think now, I mean, Macron, to be fair, like in the past, in you know, 2017 and so on, he was saying really quite liberal things about Algeria. This line last year was quite confusing that he came out with. Um, but, of course, there is the additional spur, shall we say, at the moment of Algeria having quite a lot of natural gas that uh, the EU would quite like to secure a lot of exports of. So I think that's certainly motivation aside from the uh, the kind of personal views of Macron. You know, there is certainly, should we say, a spur to make nice um, mm. pretty soon. Mm. And this whole subject of sort of reinterpreting history or having a look at it through the prism of, of our current gaze uh, is something that's very much in my mind at the moment. I am judging the Bailey Gifford Prize for non-fiction, uh, which is a, a wonderful, wonderful uh, prize. It's, I think, the biggest non-fiction prize in, in the world. Um, and obviously, I can't say anything about any of the individual <laughs> books that I'm, that I'm reading. But I am noticing that there's a theme of a lot of people looking at history and seeing it in a, in a different in a different way. Yes, I mean, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about this at the moment because it's something that gets called presentism. Uh, is the idea that you're sort of looking at history through very current goggles and, you know, maybe that's confusing. But, I mean, there was recently a, an editorial by the president of the American Historical Association kind of, you know, saying presentism was a very bad thing and there was a huge amount of pushback and actually he issued rather a grovelling apology for his words. And I think partly because the problem with the idea of presentism is, you know, saying saying something like, oh, we're also interested in racial justice now, so if we look at the past, we're projecting that onto them. Well, in the past, history has always been, always been written by white men who had no interest in it. So maybe who's the presentist here? You know, was it those white men writing their own version or is it us now 
taking that story back. Um, so, so it's a very controversial and difficult area. But I mean, I do think with um, with France and Algeria, there really does seem to have been significant progress forward, and there are archives that historians would very much like to look at. Mm. So, let's hope mm. that is going to move. And I mean, I guess that the the, the the root of this all is in education, because we believe what we're taught as small children. Who, as you say, who writes the the history book? And perhaps the 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 secret to this then is educating the educators, so that the people who go into schools who say this is what happened in the past are aware of exactly what did happen. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think, you know, I'm very encouraged that I think actually lots of teachers are very open to, you know, discussion constantly moving on and, you know, new information coming and being added to the corpus and so forth. And, you know, a lot of schools actually do have events with people like me going in and talking about different aspects of history as well. You know, there is certainly an appetite for it. And I think, you know, history is one of those things that we tend to get more interested in as we get older. That is a fairly natural process, I suppose, that you begin to look back um, as you get older. But actually, I think a younger generation who are really quite political are often very interested in it. and They are driving, you know, some change in terms of the focus and all that. And that's very interesting. Mm. I mean, historically, France has, of course, been a very close ally, although often at war <laughs> with, with Britain. Uh, and it seems like our top diplomat, whose job description is get on with the neighbours, <laughs> I mean. has been slagging off France. Our top diplomat and probably our next prime minister. Um, this extraordinary line that she came out with, you know, some Macron friend or foe, and she said the jury's out. I mean, what a thing to say about a NATO ally. I mean, sort of unbelievable. Um, he responded very wittily, actually, didn't he? By sort of, he came back and said, you know, well, we're great friends of Britain sometimes, despite the, uh, <laughs> the leaders. I mean. You know, uh, so thankfully he has brushed that off and not taken terrible offence, which he, of course, might have done. Mm. Um, But, I mean, you know, I think this is... At the moment, we're still trapped. And, you know, Britain facing enormous crises economically, financially, all this sort of stuff, is kind of trapped in this Conservative Leadership Party contest where Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak are speaking to this tiny selectorate of, you know, 0.3%, did you say it was, of of people? Minuscule. Minuscule, who have prejudices such as we don't like the French. You know, so that's who they're appealing to. They're not speaking in a way that is aimed at the other, you know, 99 point kind of 7% of the country who perhaps sort of rather less... bizarrely, effect, you know, kind of obsessed mm. with these things. Uh, and of course, while all this go- is going on, Britain does appear to be rudderless. We're right in the middle of the biggest cost of living crisis in a generation. Uh, that's something the FT picks up on. It does. I mean, it's all over the front page of the FT and then several of the inside pages this morning um, about, you know, energy bills going to go up by 80%. I mean, it, it's kind of unspeakable. And then even higher, of course, next year. And, you know, we're at the point where, as they say, sort of even people sort of earning... 45,000 a year, you know, very much privileged people in this country are going to be needing assistance with these bills because they're going to be so colossal. And meanwhile, we, yeah, we have no government. I mean, so that's, you know, a bit of a problem. And nobody was, Liz Truss, Rishi Sunak, nobody spoke about it yesterday. No ministers, because of course, all the ministers we currently have are not going to be ministers in a week and a bit when the new government comes in. So I guess they don't think they can say anything or they don't care. It's quite, quite extraordinary. And uh, I think we should join Andrew Muller now because, of course, he's got many more extraordinary stories for us. We learned this week that the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, generally held to be one of the shabbier compromises in diplomatic history, was in fact fine, actually 
Good. What? I'm not sure. Yeah, what? Heard. What? Huh? I don't know that one. Really? No, no. no. Yeah, sure. We learned this on the 83rd anniversary of its signing from the somewhat startling source of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Russia, a country usually much keener to brandish the credentials of its predecessor state, the Soviet Union, as a scourge of Nazis rather than an accessory to them. The outstandingly terrible music now playing in the background is from a weird little video with which Russia's foreign ministry interrupted its usual social media output of just incessant, pitiful, whining nonsense about how horrible everyone is being to them, re the whole entirely unprovoked and utterly deranged assault on a neighbouring sovereign state thing. The subtitles sought to position what was delicately referred to as the Treaty of Non-Aggression between Germany and the USSR as a cunning, if not downright noble, placeholder, which enabled the Soviet Union to eventually fight Germany from a position of strength. Or, as the weird little video puts it, so the war began on strategically more advantageous borders for the Soviet Union. Which is one way to describe invading Poland. <coughs> It's an interpretation, albeit one which neglects any mention of the secret protocol of the pact, which effectively sought to divide Eastern Europe between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, and if we might offer further notes, we're not sure we would have included all things considered, specifically like if the wreckage of our armoured columns was presently an art installation on the main drag of the capital city of the country we'd attempted to conquer. This quote from former UK Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, as will now be read by Monocle 24's undetected irony desk chief, Chris Chermak. I must confess to the most profound distrust of Russia. I have no belief whatsoever in her ability to maintain an effective offensive, even if she wanted to. <coughs> well, quite. We will return to this theme later in today's monologue, which is something to look forward to. For the moment, though, we would appear to have learned that Russia's foreign ministry has not learned that once you find yourself trying to positively recontextualise historical collaboration with Nazi actual Germany, you might want to check if you have somehow inadvertently meandered onto the wrong side of history. <coughs> Elsewhere on the hapless authoritarianism beat... Yes, you are now hearing the jazz fusion noodlings of Weather Report, and yes, Weather Report absolutely sucked out loud, but they are an appropriate soundtrack to the next bit, so live with it. Okay, okay. fair enough, but let's move yeah. on quickly. I'll give you that, yeah. I guess. Okay. For we learned that forecasting the weather in Hungary, and you may now see what we've done there, is not for the faint of heart, thin of skin, weak of knee, or saggy of spine. We learned that Hungary's short-tempered government had sacked the country's two senior-most meteorologists for getting the weather wrong. Do we have a clip which suggests someone getting booted down the stairs and their belongings being flung after them? Brilliant. 
Last Saturday was St Stephen's Day, on which Hungarians traditionally give it up for King Stephen I, who reigned over them circa the early 11th century and performed sterling work fending off the invading legions of the Holy Roman Empire on the recurrent occasions on which the Holy Roman Empire had a pop. A mighty fireworks display was planned along the banks of the Danube. And that is indeed much how it might have gone had the pyrotechnics not been postponed after the now unemployed boffins confidently predicted hosing rain, which did not materialise. So we have learned, not for the first time in very recent history, of the miserable humorless entitlement that invariably underpins authoritarianism, in this case to the satire-defyingly absurd extent of taking umbrage at the weather for defying one's demands. And this is where this week's monologue will return to the theme established earlier on as we attempt to conclude with an at least semi-serious point. Hang on tight, this could go anywhere. This week, specifically Wednesday, saw the coincidence of Ukraine's Independence Day with the half-anniversary of Russia's attempt to ensure that it would be Ukraine's last Independence Day, which means that the rest of us have now been learning for six months a bracing lesson in the courage, resilience and resourcefulness of Ukraine's people and a hopefully much more lasting one in the folly of hoping that monsters will grow less monstrous if we indulge their imaginary grievances. The latter, at least, was one we should not have had to learn the hard way. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, speaking of monsters, I guess in the present day, the closest we have to a monster is something that uh, died out centuries ago. I'm talking, of course, of dinosaurs. There's a wonderful story you found from Portugal. I am delighted by this story, uh, reported in the Portugal resident, as well as several other places, that a a gentleman in Pombal in Portugal was digging up his back garden, probably building a nice extension, started to find a few little fossilised bones, dug a bit more, and has found the biggest sauropod skeleton ever discovered in Europe. Absolutely massive. It's about six storeys high, if you can imagine this, (laughs) sort of going down onto his house in Pombal. And now, of course, everybody is, you know, there's now sort of all these scientists on site digging it up. When you just wanted a little kitchen extension, imagine. Extraordinary. What does that mean for his house? He probably has to move out. Nothing good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, and it is so big. I mean, to look at the pictures, it really is just, it cannot be exaggerated. It's absolutely massive. Um, so yes, indeed, a very, very kind of, what, what a thing to have just been sitting under your house for, well, you know, 145 million years. <laughs> I presume your house hasn't been there quite that long. I mean, <laughs> well, it should have left well alone, but perhaps his lawn was ugly, who knows, because oh, well. all of our lawns are, frankly, let's uh, look at it, ugly at the moment, because of course we can't water them. This drought that is across Europe uh, is really, really badly affecting gardeners. Yes, and I was delighted by this story in the Washington Post today, which is about um, the Sweden, Goatland in Sweden, uh, you know, very attractive holiday destination, have had a Goatland's Ugliest Lawn competition on Instagram. So everybody had to post their really ugly lawns. And this is basically to encourage people not to use their hosepipes, of course, and to continue in this way. Um, and so the the winner is a man called... I'm, 
apologise in advance to our Swedish listeners for my poor pronunciation. I think it's Marcus Nordström or something like this. Oh, I think that was a very good attempt. Well, I mean, it sounded probably a bit French. I mean, I'm sure it's completely wrong. Um, But uh, but anyway, he is, do look him up. He's got the worst lawn um, that you can possibly imagine. I mean, it really is. Apparently he hasn't watered it for a year. It's absolutely dreadful. I mean, a real... A real disaster, but he's terribly pleased, of course, because he's won this competition. So how marvellous. How marvellous. And so his prize, I believe, is um, somebody, a a local gardener who's going to visit him. She's going to plan a drought-resistant garden, which seems very sensible, but something that we're all really going to have to do. I mean, that sounds very much like future-proofing to me. Um, You know, we're all going to have to deal with clearly much more extreme uh, climate conditions. And, I mean, obviously those have hugely serious... um, you know, ramifications, but actually also, again, these rather domestic ones as well. Even these small changes will affect everybody's life, whether or not you pay attention to the kind of bigger politics of it. Mm, absolutely. Uh, and that brings us to sort of bath water uh, and so on. I'm just trying to find this wonderful story about how um, apparently if the more smelly you are, the sexier you are. Oh, I'm told. But then this did come up in the New York Post, so <laughs> I'm not sure that, that, that we, that's particularly believable. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's probably something about pheromones or so on in there somewhere, right? I mean, you know, um, bodily smells can be... Funnily enough, I was having this conversation last night because um, we walked past a rather interesting perfumery and dropped in to smell them. And there's long been a debate in the perfume community about Americans have never made a truly great perfume because they don't appreciate dirt enough. (laughs) (laughs) Europeans and Asians, of course, are all chucking in these kind of animalic smells and musk and civet and ambergris and all this. And Americans are trying to make things that smell like a scrubbed grapefruit. So this is the theory. I'm sure sure this is changing now. Maybe the New York Post is out there ahead, changing it. (laughs) No, dirt can be sexy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it would certainly seem that way. Um, Just just talking about perfume, there's this wonderful brand called Gallivant and it's completely um, based on cities. So every single fragrance uh, is, reflects the city uh, and um, it, it's sort of about the city. So, for instance, my favourite is Istanbul and it's kind of musky and exotic and lovely. There's a new one called Gdansk, which, uh, you know, is, is kind of Polish and you just feel the kind of, I don't know, the, the kind of Polishness of it. <laughs> Does that sound bizarre? Does it smell of Pierogi? <laughs> I mean, I don't know what, what is this. <laughs> there's London, there's Los Angeles, there's Tel Aviv. Again, another one I really love. Um, but I love the idea that that you're taken on a journey through your fragrance. Yes. I mean, I think these are kind of, you know, very much, I think this feels to me like the future of it. You know, in the, in the past... You know, I think people sort of have had perfumes that have sort of reflected moods and all sorts of things, whereas I do think now there is this sense of sort of, yes, those global specific locations, that feels very current to me. Absolutely. Well, uh, our, our global, globally specific place is London, and I hope that you stay with us here in London because there's much more to come from Monocle 24 today. But that's all for this edition of this programme. Thanks very much to my guest, Alex Van Tonselman, also to our studio engineer, Nora Hall. And, of course, the programme returns at the same time next weekend. And don't forget to tune in tomorrow's edition of Monocle on Sunday. Uh, that goes out at 9am London time. I'll be in the studio again. And I'll be joined by uh, Tyler Brule, and I'll also have a couple of guests here in the studio going through the papers with me. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Listener.